All right. This morning we're going to be not in 1 Samuel because I wasn't quite ready. We are going to be in Mark chapter 5 this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5 and we're going to look at the first 20 verses. So because you are all people, you all know something about people. And that's this. People are weird. And people do weird things, right? Like, we just kind of know that's how it goes. And historically, there has been a group of people that, for whatever reason, just seem to like to put their weirdness on display from time to time. And that is professional musicians. If any of you are watching, sorry. Um, but we've seen it in within a number of different people. We've seen it whenever like Ozzy Osbourne like bites the head off of a living bat or like whenever Alice Cooper decides that he'll take a boa constrictor and put him in the kill position like as he wraps him around him or like whenever Iggy Pop decides he'll roll around on broken glass on stage, right? Like, come on y'all, that's weird. And most of us will look at these actions and the people that do them and be like, that's a little bit crazy. And sometimes we wonder, why would you do those things? Like, maybe it's to draw people's attention. Maybe they're a little mentally unstable. Or maybe it's something completely different that an average guy like me just can't quite understand. This morning we're going to look, we're going to look at an encounter between Jesus and a man who everyone around would label as crazy. And the things that he did, they would look at and be like, those things are crazy. And as we look at this text, and as we look at this encounter between Jesus and this man, I want us to look at these three things. I want us to look at how Jesus engages with the outcast. I want us to look at how Jesus exercises his power. And I want us to look at how Jesus takes the outcasts and ultimately takes our place. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Will you follow along with me as I read? It says there, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles into pieces. And no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs and let us enter them. And so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered to the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. 
And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Church, these are the words of God from the mouth of God, and He has given them to us because He loves us, and they are true. So begin, let's talk about how Jesus engages with the outcast. So I think since the time Donna and I have been dating, so for about 10 years, I've been trying to wear her down, like, look, your life is not complete because you have not watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Like, and you're in, you are broken inside because you don't even want to. And so, like, I finally wore her down. And a few months ago, she's like, fine, we'll watch him. She liked him, just for the record. But most of the time, whenever we were watching him, like, Elliot was at school or with grandparents or something. But there were parts of it where she was there. And sometimes she'd kind of mosey out of her room and come and sit down on the couch and watch a little bit and then go away. But one time, whenever she came in, Gollum was on the screen. And if you've ever seen the movie, like you probably are like, oh, I bet that was troublesome, right? Because if you've ever seen Gollum, you know something. Like he's kind of creepy, right? Like he has this gray, like kind of slimy skin. He has real thin, stringy hair, these huge eyes, a mouthful of rotten teeth. He's uncomfortably thin with bones sticking out all over him. He walks on all four like an animal most of the time. He's pretty much naked. And to top it all off, he has this high-pitched, like screechy, just creepy voice. I was like, man, she's going to get freaked and I'm going to have to turn it off. She, I was upset because she was going to inconvenience me, right? Like that's, a, that's essentially what it came down to. But that's not what went down. Instead, Elliot kind of moseys off and comes back later and says, where's that little gray guy? He was my favorite. So I'm like, in that moment, I'm like, is this good? Like, is this a good thing? Because, like, she's not affected by the way that people look? Or should I be really concerned because my kid seems to have an affinity for weird, creepy things, right? Like, I'm not sure where it's at, but in the end, it doesn't really matter. That's kind of extra. Well, here's what I want us to focus on. Not Elliot's love for this weird creature, but instead I want us to focus on this creature, this man, this character of Gollum. Gollum is an outcast. He is a man with a problem. He is, we could say, possessed by something. He is possessed by a love for the ring. In the third installment of this story, The Return of the King, J.R.R. Tolkien gives us some background on Gollum, or Smeagol as he was once called, because that is the name that he was given whenever he was born. That was the name he had before the ring of power corrupted him. He was a seemingly normal guy. He led a normal life. He did normal things. He had friends and family that he liked to laugh with, spend time with, and just do normal things with. But now he has given himself over to something. He has given himself over to a power that is greater than himself. And it consumes him. It tortures him. It changes his name. And it isolates him from everyone that he knows. And as I read this text in Mark chapter 5, and I think about this weird little fella named Gollum. I can't help but thinking, man, they seem an awful lot alike. But here's the difference. Gollum is a character from the mind of Tolkien. The man in our text is a living, breathing human being created in the image of God. As we enter this text, 
yeah, it's fun to talk about Gollum and my kid and how she's weird and likes creepy things, but we need to center ourselves around this. This man was real. What's interesting about this text, about this narrative, is something that's actually not really apparent to you and I whenever we first read it. Because what's interesting about this text is where it all happens. To the original audience, this would have jumped off the page at them. But to you and I, because we're not familiar with the lay of the land, we don't even notice. But Jesus and the disciples are in a land. They went to a place that is populated almost entirely by Gentiles, who Jews, they avoided them at all costs. Like if they had to take a trip, if they had to take a trip somewhere, like if they needed to get from the south part to the north part of the country. The problem was in the middle, there's this place called Samaria with a bunch of filthy Gentiles like you and me that live in it. And so instead of going through Samaria, they would take a trek miles and miles around just so they could avoid them. It's interesting in our text though, they intentionally sail to this place and we don't know why. There's no obvious reason that they would go there. The text doesn't tell us why they're there. And it seems that in the end, they didn't really do much else other than go and encounter this man. Maybe the only reason that Jesus took them there at all was for this encounter. So Jesus and the disciples get out of the boat and they are met by this crazy naked man with cuts and dried blood all over him. And he lives among the tombs. Try and picture this scene. Like, try and imagine what it would be like if you were one of the disciples watching this. This naked guy is running towards you. He no doubt smells terrible, looks terrible, has cuts and blood all over him. He's not the guy you stop and ask directions for. He's not the guy you ask anything for. He is the guy you absolutely avoid at all costs. And as he's running towards you, if you're one of the disciples, he's running toward you. I don't care how big or small you are. You're probably going to be a little bit freaked. But something unexpected comes from him. Look at verse 7 and see what he says. He says, Jesus, son of the most high God. He not only calls him by his name, but also by a title. This is unexpected. This guy is isolated and an outcast from all of society. He doesn't talk to people. He doesn't get the news. Doesn't even live in the same region that Jesus does. Why would he address him in this way? It's not this man that's got the scoop on who is before him. It's not this man who recognizes who he is speaking to. But instead is these unclean spirits. It is these demons that are within him. You know, as we read about the life and ministry of Jesus, all the time we see that the disciples and those closest to Jesus are slow to understand who he is. But whenever Jesus encounters someone possessed by demons, they always know exactly who it is that they are talking to. And here with this man, it's not one spirit, but many. In verse 9, what does he say? Jesus asked for his name. And the reply... I am legion, for we are many. Now this could get lost on some of us, right? Like, great. I'm not calling my kid that, but your parents named you that? That's cool. But he's actually communicating something in this name. You see, at this time in history, the Roman Empire ruled the world. If you're better at geography than me, which doesn't take much, picture a world map. Picture where England is at and picture where India is at. 
The Roman Empire ruled everything in between. Now, in order to do that, you need an army. You need a police force. It's estimated that at its peak, the Roman army had something like a half million soldiers in its ranks. To give you a little uh, context, you ever been to Kansas City? Imagine everybody in Kansas City was a grown man with military training that was ready to go and fight and die. That's the Roman army. And inside of the Roman army are these battalions of four to 6,000 soldiers called legions. So when he says, my name is Legion, he is communicating something to, the, to Jesus. There's not just a couple of us here. Our numbers are vast. These demons that have overtaken this man, they have given him something. They have given him the superhuman ability that he can wrench apart chains and break shackles. But they have also taken something from him. They have taken everything. They have taken his mental and his physical health. They have taken his home, his family, his friends, his job. Everything imaginable in this man's life has been taken from him, including his name. And they have made him an outcast from the society he was once a part of. And now these demons make a request. Do you know what they want? Jesus, just leave us alone. Just let us be. And in my brokenness, can I be honest with you? If I was one of the disciples, like, put yourself back in there. You know what I would say? Let's go. Leave them be. This isn't our place. This isn't our region. This dude's not part of our community. Let him go back to the tombs. If all those demons are contained in one dude, that's great. They're not spread out everywhere. Let's go. Thanks be to God, Jesus is not like me. Because he instead leans in. He engages with this man. He engages with this outcast. And think about in your life, isn't that the harder thing to do? Like, in your life, isn't it so much easier to ignore the people that you see as outcasts? Those that are outside of your friend group? those that everyone else makes fun of, those that could hurt your social standing if you're seen together, those that are seen as weird or disgusting for whatever reason. Or you know what? Even as adults, we think this doesn't matter. Well, let's be real, it does. What about those people that we just think are ugly and we don't want to be around? Maybe we think their attitude is ugly. Maybe we think they're physically ugly. Isn't it harder to engage with that person? Oftentimes, these are the people in our lives that we ignore. Or maybe sometimes, in order to make ourselves feel better, or to make ourselves look good, or because maybe we need something from them, we kind of throw them a bone. Like, we do something that makes us feel better, but then the end doesn't really cost us anything. Like, maybe we give them a wave. Maybe we greet them in public. Maybe we pay them a compliment in passing. And we might tell ourselves, this is me engaging with them. But is it? Ask yourself this. In that encounter, are you, getting, are you gaining anything about that person? Are you getting to know that person? If not, you're not engaging with them. Wouldn't it be harder 
to invite that person to lunch with you? It's on a Friday night when you have your friend group, like, hey, come sit with us. Let me introduce you to my people. To have them into your home. To invite them to be with your friends when you go to do something. These simple day-to-day things can be hard. Or what about engaging with those in our society who are more outcasts? Wouldn't it be harder, instead of just giving them a nod when you see them, to instead, like, go to a homeless shelter and serve? Even in our own community, maybe go and serve meals to less fortunate. And instead of just standing on this side of the table and serving them, to then go and sit down with them and talk to them like they're a real person. Maybe see if there's a way that you can stay in contact with them and follow up. Maybe just to do something practical like what Jesus did and ask them their name. Look, y'all, engaging with those in our society that are outcasts, it's going to be hard. It's going to require some work. It's going to draw the attention of others that sometimes we're not going to like. But is this not what Christ has done for us? Ephesians 2 tells us this, that apart from Christ, we are hostile, we are strangers, we are aliens, and we are far off. But that Jesus came to bring peace, to draw us near, to make us family. If you're a follower of Jesus, your call is this, to go. Go to the outcast and love them, even though, yes, it will be hard. And in Matthew 25, though, Jesus tells us something. As you do it to the least of these, as you do it to the outcast, it's still you've done it to me. We are to engage and love them as Jesus did with this man. And so here they are in this exchange, right? Jesus and this man standing there and speaking, or really these demons speaking through this man. And they make a seemingly strange request. Send us into the pigs. And now the rubber meets the road. Now it's the time for action. And here's where we see Jesus exercise his power. So, maybe there's some historians among us that were better in history than me. Anybody know what happened in April 1789? It's a big deal. We installed Mr. George Washington as the first president of these here United States. And in January, we have now installed our 46th president. I don't care what you think about him, George Washington, or anybody in between. Here's what I want us to think about. Not the people that fill the office, but the office itself. Because I think that we could all agree this position is one of power and influence. But as Americans, we know something. Though that is the chief office, it's different here than it is in other countries. Because in many other nations, the ruler is supreme. He has the final say over everything, over the military, finances, healthcare, food distribution, and everything else. They have all the power, and those that are their subjects know it. Here in this exchange with Jesus and this man, it's the same in this way. There's no questioning who has all the power. Look at the way that this man and even the demons address Jesus throughout the text. Verse 7, Jesus, don't torment me. Verse 10, Jesus, don't send us out. Verse 12, they are begging him. The spirits make it clear by the words that they use. Jesus has all the power. He's the one that is ultimately in control. He is the one that is going to get to decide what happens to them. These spirits know they are about to be exercised from this man. 
And why is it that they know that? Because they realize that it is the God-man himself standing in front of them. And that he is the one with all the control. The spirits have shown that they are the one with the power over this man. And that he was hopeless against them. But now they see that they are about to be the ones without hope and without control. Their business is to destroy everything around them. And now that they see they'll no longer be able to to devastate this man, they make a plea. Let us go destroy the pigs instead. Jesus uses his power, grants them their wish. He allows them to enter into the pigs and to run them into the sea. And in a moment, everything about this man's life has changed. Because what had taken everything from him, what had assumed all the control in this man's life was now gone. Jesus had changed his life in an instant by exercising his power and authority. Now look, I count it a privilege that I get to do life with y'all. And in my time together, I've become pretty convinced that at no time during knowing you have any of y'all been possessed by even a single demon. Praise be. But... Because of that fact, it might be hard for us to enter into this story and see what do I have in common with this guy. But it's more than you might think. If you had to honestly answer this question, how, what would your answer be? What ultimately has control over you? Is it what your friends think about you? Your spouse? How much money is in your bank account? Is it your parents' acceptance of you? Is it how well you do in school, your job? Is it how you look physically? What do you wake up thinking about in the morning? What do you think about as you're falling asleep? What consumes your thoughts the most throughout the day? What is driving your life forward? Because whatever it is, that is what's controlling you. And if you say, nothing controls me, then it's probably your pride and your self-image. Just make no mistake, my friends. Something controls all of us. And if it's not Jesus, then it's an idol. It's a sin. It's wrong. It's going to run your life. It's going to destroy your life. And then, ultimately, it's going to fail you. Look, we've been created for nothing and no one but God to be the center of all that we are. And if we let anything else take, our, take his place, we are doomed to be a slave to that thing and to be controlled by that thing. You may not end up like this man, living among dead people, running around naked and covered in cuts and blood. But like him, you're going to suffer torment of some kind. Jesus is the only thing. He is the only person that has the authority to bring hope and meaning to every situation. Over and over again in the scriptures, and even in your life, God is asking this question, will you trust me? Will you trust my authority and place yourself under it? As we look at this encounter, we see the demons recognize the authority of Jesus. But so did the people in the town. And as these people come, they see this lunatic now clothed in his right mind, sitting and having a conversation with Jesus. And you would think that they would be grateful, that they would be overwhelmed with joy. 
But instead, look at verse 17. They are now the ones begging. Get out. Why do you think that is? I think it's the authority of Jesus. I think it's because after witnessing power like that, after witnessing an event like that, you can't be indifferent. They realized that if Jesus stayed, they would have to wrestle with the question of who is Jesus and what is he here to do? And maybe they are like some of us, that we're actually scared that if we fully surrender ourselves to Jesus, he might shake our lives up in a way that we don't want. If Jesus stayed, they'd have to ask and answer this question that I put before you now. If Jesus really is who he claims to be, if he really is the Son of God, if he really is our only hope, if Jesus really is who he claims to be and really has the power that the Bible claims he has, then isn't our only right response to worship and follow him? This man that has been healed knew the right response. Yes. That's all that I can do. In verse 18, as Jesus and the disciples prepare to leave, he comes and he asks Jesus, let me come with you. And Jesus tells him no. Instead, he says, no, I want you to go back to your town. Go back to the place you're from and I want you to tell people how much God has done for you. Now, the mercy that he has shown to you. And the man submits to the authority of Jesus. Will you? In this text, we see Jesus engage with the outcast, exercise his power and authority, and finally, we see Jesus take the place of the outcast. We see Jesus take our place. Before Jesus entered this man's life, do you know what his future held? Absolutely nothing. Other than more suffering, more pain, and more hopelessness. After com completely depleting this man, of everything in his life. The spirits that controlled him, I think would have ultimately done to him what they did to the pigs and ended his life. This man would have probably given anything to be freed from his suffering. But in the end, do you know what it took? It took someone taking his place. But because that's not exactly what we see in these verses, let me take a minute and explain. The man that we find in this text, he is naked. He has been driven out of the city and into the tombs. He is crying out incomprehensible things. He has lost all relationships that he has ever held dear. He is being physically harmed and cut with stones, and ultimately, the man is being destroyed. At the end of the Gospels, do you know where we find Jesus? We find him, too, stripped naked. We find him driven out of the city. We find him driven into a tomb and being cut by the whips of the Romans. And on the cross, we see him crying out things that everyone around thinks are incomprehensible. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us something. That because in that moment, Jesus himself had become our sin, he has lost the relationship that he holds most precious, the relationship with God the Father. Ultimately, Jesus took the place of this man. He took his sin, he took his evil, he took his suffering. And he took it to the cross in order that that man might be healed and not destroyed. He took all of that so that evil could be destroyed without destroying this man.
And at the cross, he did that not only for him, but for us as well. He did that for all of those that would ever call on his name. He did it so that the evil in your life and the evil in mine might be destroyed without destroying us. Jesus took our place, and he showed that, hey, I do have power over all things, even the things that you can't see, like the spirits inside of this man. This is the good news that Jesus brought and that he now offers to you and I. Friends, there are two options before you. Are you going to trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross? Or are you going to trust in yourself? There are only two options, and you have to pick one. Will you submit to Christ and let him take your place, or will you rely on yourself? Here's my call to the unbeliever. Submit to Jesus and let him take your place. Let him take your evil on himself and let him give you his perfection because that really is your only hope. He will destroy your evil without it destroying you. And to the believer, remind yourself daily that apart from Christ, you are the outcast. You are the one without hope. but that now because of the work at the cross and at the empty tomb, you have been given hope. You've been brought near. You have been made a part of the family. And in light of that reality, let it move you. Let it move you out towards the outcasts in your life and in our world with the good news and the love of Christ. Let's pray. Yeah, we thank you that you, man, we thank you that you love us in a way that we definitely do not deserve. We thank you that you were willing to engage with this man, that you were willing to heal this man, that you, that you were able to take his sin and his shame and his evil and take it upon yourself so that it might not destroy him. We thank you you did that not only for him, but also for all of us who call on your name. We pray that, um, that we would let that reality truly change us. We pray that it really would, every day and in very practical ways, move us towards those that we might see as outcasts. And remember the love that you have shown us. Thank you that you love us, care for us, and that you are making us more and more like Christ every day. And we bring all this before the throne in his name. Amen.